you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. We're in Jonah chapter 1. Jess Blevins and I were just looking for it. She said it's hard to find. It's after Joel, Amos, and Obadiah, and just before um, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. So yes, it is hard to find in those minor prophets. But we're in Jonah. Uh, We started a new sermon series last week that we have entitled Waves of Mercy, Depths of Grace. And last week we did an overview of the entire book of Jonah and said it is a great work of literature. And you'll see a little more of that this week. I'll point out a few things. We said it has great structure and symmetry to it. Chapters 1 and 3 both begin with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. Chapters 2 and 4 both begin with Jonah praying to God. So there's this structure and symmetry to it. There are numerous plays on words. This guy really uses language Well, we'll see some of that today in various other rhetorical devices. I've encouraged you to read this book. It only takes six or seven minutes to read. Somebody said they let their phone read it to them in the car when they were going someplace. That's a great way to do it as well. So today we're in Jonah chapter 1, and I've been praying that we would all see together, first, the shocking honesty of God, second, the storms sent by God, And then third, the self-sacrifice that points us to God. So let me pray for us, and then we will dig in and look at Jonah chapter 1, and hopefully God will show us those things from the text. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are gathered together now before your book, before your word, and we're asking you to use these words that you inspired through your prophet Jonah. And that you would use these ancient words in order to shape us and mold us today. That you would be at work in our hearts as my brother Paul prayed that we would see ourselves in Jonah. That we would see our own sin. But more than that we would see your grace and your mercy and your love and your faithfulness that never gives up on your people. Help us to see how you always accomplish your purposes And I pray that you would grow our faith and our hope in you, that we would be quicker to look to you and to cry out to you because of the time that we spend together in this book. And Father, as always, I ask that you'd be willing to do all this, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The original audience that first read this book, this account from Jonah, would have been shocked by the beginning of this book. I want you to feel the shock as well that they would have felt in these first three verses. What they would be shocked by is just the shocking honesty of God. That's the first point, the shocking honesty of God. And to, to see this, you have to know a little bit of the background. And the background is this, if you look back in 2 Kings chapter 14 down around verse 25, you can read there where Jonah was a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam II. And Jonah, during that time that he was a prophet, had correctly prophesied that King Jeroboam II would restore the border of Israel to the north and to the west. That King Jeroboam II would restore that border. The Lord gave that word to him and he prophesied that. And that happened. So in the minds of the original audience, the people who knew Jonah, they saw Jonah as a legit prophet, 
right? This is a guy who hears from God, who has a proven track record. He is a spokesman for God. He has predicted the future of what would happen because God told him what was going to happen. He was brave enough to stand up and to say that, and the king followed his advice, and what the Lord had said, the word of the Lord that had come to Jonah came to pass. And so the original audience sees him as this great man of God. This official spokesman for God. So when they read verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. They're saying, yes, the word of the Lord is coming to the prophet. The word of God is coming to the man of God. And we're about to hear a word from God. So the people are excited, right? And so what's the word? Verse 2, God says, arise, go to Nineveh. You need to know that's their great enemy. That's the capital of Assyria. In a few decades, the Assyrians will conquer the northern kingdom. And it's that border to the north and the west that Jonah had predicted would be shored up. That's the direction where the Assyrians were. So when he speaks and says, the word of the Lord is, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me, then they're saying, yes, Lord, yes. Those Ninevites are bad people. Those Assyrians are bad. And so we're glad that you're going to send your prophet to tell them that you're going to pour out your judgment on them, right? Jonah's never been wrong before. He's a man of God. He has predicted these things in the past, and the people are thrilled in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, not north. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish to the east, not the west. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish. And the original audience is like, hold the phone. What? This prophet, this man of God is disobeying God? He's going in the opposite direction. He's not doing what God has called him to do. And the original artists would have to say, well, why why even write this stuff down? What kind of God's supposed to be putting this stuff in his book that makes him look all great and mighty, that the God of Israel is great, and that that other nations would want to follow him, and his own people don't even follow him? The own man of God disobeys him? What kind of book is this? This is crazy. Who talks like this? Who would even record this? Who would write this down? It's an embarrassment to God, not for his praise and his glory. Let me make a couple of applications about this shocking honesty of God. First application, I want you to understand. God is so honest. God is honest about the shortcomings of his followers. God is so open and honest about how broken and messed up our creation is. And he speaks these things in his word. The Bible is so trustworthy. It tells it like it really is. You can trust what you read here. If you are here and you are skeptical about God, you're skeptical about Christianity, first let me say we are glad that you are here We want Redeemer Church to be a place where you can find honest answers to honest questions. We want this church to be that way. 
And the answers we will give you are consistent with the word because we trust this book because God is so shockingly honest and because this book is so trustworthy. And we want to be that kind of church because our God is like that and you can trust him. Even the embarrassing stuff, he writes down, he puts in there, he's so honest. He shoots you straight. He does not pull any punches. This book is so trustworthy. But there's a warning here. There's a warning here. Be very careful. As you read this book, be very careful of thinking that you know more than what God knows. Or that you know better than what God says. Or that your timing is better than God's timing. There's a warning here. Because we're going to see what happens when the people of God disregard the word of God. That will come up in point two. There's a warning here. But you know, maybe you're here today and your problem is not with God and it's not with the Bible. Your problem is with the church. Your problem is with the people of God. That you've been hurt deeply by the church. And that's something that really keeps you from coming to God. If that's where you are, notice how honest God is in his word about that. That's the second application. The people of God will let you down. God says that. He just shows you, just puts it right out there in front of everybody. That the man of God, this proven spokesman for him, sometimes rebels and runs in the opposite direction. The people of God will let you down. But you can count on God. The prophet runs, the prophet rebels, the prophet refuses to do what God says. But listen to me, God still gets his word to Nineveh. It's not like that doesn't happen. God still accomplishes his purposes. You know, this application is true, I want to say it, of Redeemer Church. It is true of us. We're coming off this women's retreat. Oh, God's been faithful and has used this place. Yes. But a part of our story is that the people here in this place will let you down. But God is at work here. And God will not let you down. You can trust him to accomplish his purposes by any and all means. Sometimes it's through us. Sometimes it's despite us. But God will accomplish his purposes. If you're mad at God because you've been hurt by his people, listen to me. What that means is you've never really put your hope in God, right? You, you put your hope in people, And the Bible is so honest. The people of God, even the best, the spokesmen, the prophets, they will let you down. But you can count on God. So put your hope in him. Well, how does God accomplish his purposes even when his own people let him down and disobey him? How does God accomplish his purposes if that happens? Point number two. The storms sent by God. Jonah runs, but God will not let him go. Look at verses 4 and 5. 
But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Let me stop right there. Let me point out a couple of little plays on words here. Do you see him playing with the word hurl? We, we tend to use that for vomit, and that's not what he's saying here. He's talking about to hurl something, to throw something. The word is used of a, a spear. Uh, King Saul hurls a spear. But the Lord hurled a wind in verse 4. The Lord hurled the wind, which caused the mighty storm. And then in verse 5, the mariners hurled the cargo into the sea to make the ship lighter so that it won't go down. But the answer of the mariners does not save them. Right? This word hurled is used again. Jonah's going to say, if you're going to stop this, you're going to have to hurl me into the sea. And it doesn't stop until they do hurl Jonah into the sea and God gets what he wants. Jonah is playing with this word hurl here. And what he's doing is he's showing, because the Lord hurls and then the mariners hurl, but it doesn't solve the problem. He's showing that man's actions are nothing compared to God's actions. That men can hurl, that the sailors can hurl, that God hurls, and his storm is what is stronger. He's showing that God is in control of everything, that our efforts cannot overcome what God is doing. God calls Jonah, and when he disobeys, he hurls the wind. He hurls this storm. Later, he's going to send a fish, and the men cannot do anything about it. Of course, the lesson is... You cannot outrun God. You cannot outsmart God. We see that as he plays with this word. He plays with the word great as well. Do you see that the Lord hurled a great wind? You see in verse 4? He's used that word great up in verse 2. He said, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. And Jonah refuses. And so God says, if Jonah will not go to the great city, then Jonah's going to go through a great storm. That's what he's saying as he, as he plays with that word great. At the end of the chapter, verse 17, he uses the word again when God sends a great fish to swallow Jonah. The lesson we get from this play on words is this, that sin, that our disobeying God often has a storm attached to it. That our sin, that our disobedience toward God often has a storm attached to it. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Not all hardship we face is a response to some particular sin we have committed, right? That makes sense. The text shows us that, right? Jonah sinned, and the storm comes in response to Jonah's sin, but the sailors are in danger of losing their life. Our sin can have terrible effects on others. It's important that we see that. Do you see that your telling God no can have disastrous effects on those around you, your family, your church, your community, your country? That is a true principle. So not all hardship we face is in response to some particular sin we have committed. But the general rule is true. Sin, disobeying God, often has a storm attached to it. The book of Proverbs shows us this over and over again. We're going to look at different Proverbs this summer. I hope you'll be there for that sermon series. The way it works is this. 
God designed all things. So God knows how life works best. And God's commands are not just because he wants to order us around or tell us what to do, but God's commands are the safe path. He's telling us in his grace, his his commands are gracious because he's telling us the safe path, the safe way to live, the way he designed things to live, the way he designed marriage to work, the way he designed life to be in the church. And so to disobey God, to turn from the way that he says to live, to live differently than how God designed us to live, results in storms in our life. It causes consequences when we don't live life the way God designed it to be lived. Maybe you are in the midst of a storm right now. It's important to ask the question, is this storm of my my own making? Is this storm because of my sin? Ask God to show you that. And if it is, then cry out to God and turn from that sin and turn back to God. Maybe the storm that you're in right now is because of someone else's sin. It's the same answer. You still cry out to God. And then perhaps go and confront that person. We will see the captain do that in a second. The sailors will certainly do that. God will do that with Jonah as he confronts him with a great fish. But we're still to cry out to God. What if we don't know if the storm is because of our sin or because of somebody else's or it's a combination? Same answer. Cry out to God. In any storm, cry out to God. Look to him. Hope in him. Trust him. I preach these sermons, some of you know, in the guest bathroom. Some of you have been in that bathroom, and I do them before the mirror and think through these things. And at this point in the sermon, I'm looking at it, and I'm just like, man, I'm depressed. I mean, we're so broken and messed up, and we sin all the time. It's only by the grace of God that we're not in a storm all the time. There ought to be 27,000 storms going on here with this many people in this place. How are we ever not in a storm? The grace of God. But he does send them or allow them at times. This one, he hurls, he throws. He's very intentional about it. And it makes me sad. And it's heavy to think. That it's a wonder we're not always in a storm. But as a child of God, I want you to know. That we have this confidence. That God uses the storms in our life. To accomplish his purposes in us. The storms that I created by my own sin, yes. The storms that I experienced because of the sin of other people, yes. As children of God, we can have confidence that God is using these storms in our lives for our good. Romans 8 and verse 29 assures us, and we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Not that all things are good, but that in all things God is working for our good. That he's using those things to make us look more like Jesus. So in the midst of the storm, I just get mad at God that he's inconveniencing me and causing me discomfort. 
Maybe in the storm we ought to just cry out and say, Oh Lord, what do you have for me to learn in this? Whether it's my, is it my sin? Help me to repent and turn from it. Is it somebody else's sin? Help me to, to go to them and restore, bring them to repentance. Help me be a part of restoring them gently. And Lord, use this for our good that we would look more like Jesus. That we're not going through a storm for nothing. James chapter 1 and verse 3 assures us, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. <laughs> what? It's, I'm supposed to be happy about the trial? James 1 3 says, yes, consider it pure joy. Consider it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. How can I do that? Because you know, the text says, that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, so that you may be complete, so that you may lack nothing. Boy, I don't let perseverance finish its work, do you? Woo, I complain. Lord, what are you doing? And I think I'm crying out to God. I'm just complaining to God. That's a good first step. You're turning to God, right? But I'm not considering it all joy. Boy, I'm giving him an earful. Consider it all joy, pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. God is growing us up. God's growing us to maturity. God is making us people who are more complete. People who are stronger, people who are better, people who look more like Jesus. God is using the storms in your life for good. God in his great love for Jonah keeps sending things. He sends the wind, he sends the storm, he sends a fish. Later we're going to send him see a plant, he sends a worm, he sends a wind. And in his love, he keeps sending stuff to us. Praise God, he's not giving up on us. He's still at work in us. Consider it pure joy. God then sends the captain to Jonah. Let's pick up where we left off. He sends this captain there in verse 5. They've, thrown the, they've hurled the cargo into the sea to lighten it. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came in and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. What's going on here? Did you notice? The captain uses the same verbs as God did in verse 1. That's not an accident, right? Look back up, I'm sorry, verse 2. When God speaks to him, he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. That's what Jonah's running from. Arise, go to Nineveh, call out against it. He goes down in this ship, the belly of the ship, and he's sleeping. And the captain comes in, and what does he say? Arise and call out to your God. Same verbs. Isn't that interesting? God sends us reminders of his word from the most bizarre places. Look for him to speak to you. Pray that he gives you ears to hear. Jonah certainly hears echoes of God's word in this pagan sailor. 
And there's such irony here. If you love irony in literature, do you see the irony? The captain is calling Joseph to call out to the true God, to Jonah's God, the true God. But Jonah, who's this great man of God and a prophet, is not calling the pagan captain to call out to the true God. The captain is a better evangelist to Jonah than Jonah is to the pagan captain. Such irony. The captain finds Jonah down in this inner part of the ship, and he's got this play on words going with down as well. Have you seen that? Look in verse 3. In response to to God's call, Jonah went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And you think, well, he can't get any lower. Well, he does, because then he goes down into the inner part of the ship, and they have to come waking up. Well, surely he can't go any lower. Well, read chapter 2, because he's hurled down, chapter 2 and verse 3, into the heart of the sea. And you think, well, he can't go any lower. Well, then chapter 2 and verse 6, yes, he's down in the belly of a whale and he says ultimately I am down at the door to Sheol at the door of death he uses this word down to show that he keeps going down that he keeps going down even when you think he can't get further down he goes further down the text is almost begging how far down are you gonna have to go before you cry out to God it's the question for us isn't it How far down are you going to have to go before you cry out to God? Well, fortunately, the self-sacrifice that we see in this text points us to God. That's the third point. The self-sacrifice points us to God and encourages us to cry out to him. You see, once the sailors see that Jonah is the cause of the storm, they also realize that dealing with Jonah is the key to stopping the storm. So let's look at verses 11 to 16. Then they, the sailors, said to him, Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, the word there is Yahweh, to the Hebrew God, these pagan men who've been crying out to other gods earlier in the text. Now they're crying out to Jonah's God. O Lord, let us not perish. For this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. More irony. These pagan sailors cry out to God when Jonah hasn't cried out yet. They're making sacrifices to the true God, making vows. And when Jonah hasn't done that, when the man of God, the prophet, the spokesman for God, God's people will let you down. But God never will. There's a debate in the literature here. Is Jonah repenting? Some folks are saying, hey, we see a picture of repentance here. I'm like, I don't. 
I don't see a picture of repentance. Yes, I understand. In verse 12, he says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, for I know it is because of me that the tempest has come upon you. He recognizes that the storm is there because of him. And some folks say that's repentance. Listen, realizing you made a mess or you did something wrong, that's not repentance, okay? He hasn't cried out to God. He hasn't asked for forgiveness, Perhaps he's still rebelling against God. Maybe he's saying, I would rather you throw me into the sea and I die before I'm going to go talk to the Ninevites. Maybe that's what he's saying. But I certainly don't see a clear evidence of repentance here. But Jonah is thinking of someone besides himself. He is saying, if you will throw me into the sea... Then it'll quiet down because I know it's because of me that this tempest has come upon you. He seems to be saying, you should not have to die because of me. I will die so you don't have to die. And look at the effects of that. Verse 15 says, the sea stops raging. And the sailors turn to God in verse 16. It's amazing. There's another player on words here. If you look up in... Verse 5, the mariners were afraid because they're afraid of the sea. Then in verse 10, when the sea gets worse, the men were exceedingly afraid. They were very afraid. They're getting more afraid. But then after they tossed Jonah into the sea and the sea ceased its raging, then the men were exceedingly afraid of the Lord. The sea has quit its raging. They're amazed at God. And they make vows and they turn to him and they cry out to him. This self-sacrifice of Jonah even moved these pagan sailors. And the self-sacrifice of Jonah should move us as well. Because it points to another who was willing to sacrifice himself for us. In Matthew 12, we looked at it last week, down around verses 39 and 40 and 41, Jesus refers to the sign of Jonah to say that in some sense, Jonah points us to Jesus. How does Jonah point us to Jesus? Well, Jesus also said, I will die so you don't have to die. Just as Jonah gave his life to save the sailors, Jesus would give his life to save us. Just as Jonah experienced the consequences of his sin, Jesus experienced the consequences of our sin. Just as Jonah was willing to die and was near death to save the sailors, Jesus was willing to die and actually did die for our sin. Such self-sacrifice should move us just as it did the sailors. As you witness the sea of God's condemnation of your sin being calmed before your eyes are you moved by Jesus sacrificing himself in that way listen to me for many of us whether you have never bent the knee to God or whether you are a follower of Jesus and you still struggle to bend the knee to God and his command One of the reasons we struggle to do that is we don't trust him. We're not sure that he has our best at heart. He assures us in his word that he does. We looked at Romans 8, 29. 
He gives us example after example of broken and messed up people who rebel against him that he continues to pursue in his love and in his mercy to show us how he moves towards rebellious people like us. We still have trouble trusting. And then he does the ultimate thing. He puts on flesh and comes into the world and is willing to take the penalty for your sin and for mine to show us that he wants what's best for you, that he wants what's best for me. Listen, you can trust him. He's willing to die for you. He moves heaven and earth for you. He sends storms for you. He controls all of nature for you. You can trust him. Oh, don't you see? We all hesitate to bend the knee to God. We all rebel before we are his and continue to rebel after we are his. In our pride, we think we know better than God. We think our timing is better. We go our own way and God patiently, lovingly, Sends a great wind. He sends great storms. He sends pagan sea captains. He sends a great fish. He sends flawed men of God like Jonah to point you to him. How far do you have to go down before you cry out to him? Let's cry out to him now. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, your grace and your mercy jumps off the page. Your persistence, your faithfulness. And even in the face of that, we are convicted that we are not faithful to you. Our hearts are like Jonah's. We will walk away and forget these prayers. But God, we ask you to remember. We pray that you would continue to pursue us. That you would continue to use all things for our good. That you would continue to grow us up so that we would be mature and lack nothing. Oh, Father, be with us in the storms, in the good times, and in the bad. Use it all to make us look more like Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.